Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each episode I interview authors about their latest works and others in the book world about their jobs, what those jobs entail, and the books that they love. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. So many fun things are happening in my Patreon community. A couple of weeks ago, my conversation with Jen Bird, owner of Athena Books in Old Greenwich, Connecticut, dropped. Jen talks about what it takes to open a new bookstore in today's world. Last week, Bookstagrammers Greer and Natalie of Cocktails and Common Reads talk about their favorite and not-so-favorite shared reads. I have already started listening to one of their recommendations, and it is fabulous. Recently, I also added two pre-publication reads and author chats. Patron participants will read electronically Home or Away by Kathleen West and The Cartographers by Peng Shepard and have chats with those authors prior to each book's publication. It is a fun opportunity that you cannot find anywhere else. The link to join is in my show notes. I hope you will consider it. I would love to have you. Today, I am conversing with Fiona Davis about the Magnolia Palace. Fiona is the New York Times bestselling author of six historical fiction novels set in iconic New York City buildings. Her novels have been chosen as One Book, One Community Reads, and her articles have appeared in publications like the Wall Street Journal and O, oh, the Oprah magazine. She first came to New York as an actress, but fell in love with writing after getting a master's degree at Columbia Journalism School. I loved the Magnolia Palace, and it is one of my January Buzz Reads picks. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Before we get started, if you like this podcast, I want to make sure that you're aware of another book podcast that I really enjoy listening to. Tegan of The Bookstorian interviews Bookstagrammers Weekly about their favorite reads and other things in the book world. Here's some more information. Hello, my name is Tegan and I'm the host of The Bookstorian podcast. I'm a book lover and bookstagrammer with a ferocious need to color code. I'm a drama teacher by trade, which also means I really love to talk. I have a constant thirst to talk about the books I've read, and sometimes the comment box just isn't long enough for me. Join me each Monday as I talk to bookstagrammers about their accounts, why they created them, what inspires them, and what tips they may have. We also discuss oh so many books across a range of different genres, and yes, there will be spoilers. I want to talk to people about the books they have read, and that means we're going to talk about what happens in those books. Subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast and follow me on Instagram at the Bookstorian Podcast. Welcome, Fiona. How are you today? Good. Thank you for having me. I am so glad you are here. You are the first person to be on the Thoughts from a Page podcast three times. Oh my goodness. I am so honored. Wow. <laughs> I know. I was thinking of all people, it's perfect that it's you. So I was so excited. 
And also before we start, I want to tell you thank you so much for including me in your acknowledgments. That just meant the absolute world to me. I had not actually seen it and I started getting all these messages from people and they're like, you're in the back of Fiona's book. You're in the back of Fiona's book. So thank you. Oh, yeah. I wanted to make sure, you know, there's so many people out there who who really keep the book community going and you're you're a huge part of it. So yeah, no, it's thanks to you. Well, it just definitely made my year. So that was very exciting and I appreciate it. Sure. Well, this book has been making quite a splash. You're a book of the month selection. You've had a starred review from Publishers Weekly and Library Journal. And I loved it as well. Much smaller accolade there compared to the others, but it's just such a wonderful book and that must be making you so happy. You know, it's really been wonderful. Each book, this is my sixth, and each book just feels like it kind of builds on the others. And this was interesting because I was worried that the Frick, which is where it was set, isn't as well known as, say, the New York Public Library or, you know, the Grand Central Terminal. I thought, oh, who's going to know about, who's going to want, you know, it's the Frick. Everyone out of town will not know where it is. And I, so I'm really even more shocked that the wonderful reception it's gotten and how everybody's interested. And so it's bringing all this attention to the Frick collection, which really deserves it. It does really deserve it. I have not been there in a while. And of course, it's been closed for a few years, but it's just such a beautiful museum. And so I was so glad years ago or several years ago when you and I were talking and you mentioned that this is the one you were focusing on next, because that's just such a wonderful museum. And like you said, now a lot more people will know about it. Exactly. Exactly. And I loved that you also merged in another whole storyline that, you know, kind of historical New York City storyline. So before we dive too much more in, why don't you just tell us a little bit about the book for those that won't have read it yet? Sure. So it's two timelines. And in 1919, it's from the point of view of this celebrated New York artist's model named Lillian. And she gets caught up in a scandal and she finds refuge in the Frick Mansion, which is where the Frick family lives. It was Henry, his wife, Adelaide, and their adult daughter, Helen. And so Lillian starts working incognito as the secretary to the very imperious and kind of prickly Helen Frick. And her life gets very much intertwined with that of the family. She gets pulled into these family dramas, including romantic trysts and a stolen pink diamond, which I call the Magnolia Diamond. And then the second part of the book, and it goes back and forth, is set in 1966 from the point of view of a London fashion model who's doing a Vogue shoot, and her name's Veronica, and she gets, the Vogue shoot goes terribly wrong, and she gets locked inside the Frick Museum, because it had at that point turned into a museum, during a three-day blizzard, along with an intern named Joshua. And she discovers a series of hidden messages that are hidden in the art works in the museum. And that leads her and Joshua on a scavenger hunt that she hopes will solve all of her financial problems. So that's kind of, it's really two models 50 years apart that are connected by this magnificent Frick mansion that eventually became a museum. I loved the idea of getting locked in the Frick. That would be so (laughs) much fun. And you're just on your own after hours, able to just spend all the time you want in front of any painting. Yes, exactly. And you know, it worked out that way because you know, I've done these dual timeline books for a while now. And I thought, you know, why don't I see if I can give myself a real challenge with that second timeline. And so I said, let's see if we can do a limited setting, a limited time period, and a limited number of characters. And what will those constraints do to affect my writing or the story? And so that's why it's only really Veronica and Joshua for most of it, he's the intern, only for three days, only in the Frick Mansion until the very end. 
And so that was fun to see how that all all came out. I'm, I was so pleased. I didn't even really focus on that aspect of it, that it really is the two of them for that limited window in the Frick. And how did you come up with the scavenger hunt idea? You know, there are all these wonderful artworks on the walls because Henry Clay Frick was a huge art collector. So they have, um, you know, Renoir, Rembrandt, Turner. There are 34 Vermeers in the world and three are at the Frick. So it's just every hallway, every room is dominated by the art on the walls. And I, I'm not quite sure where it came from, but it, it just was an idea of how can I introduce this artwork to the reader in a way that's not me being an art history professor, because I don't want to read that way. I want it to feel like it's inherent to the plot and, and integral to you know solving a mystery. And so that's how that really worked out as to how to make the mystery flow and take advantage of these beautiful works of art on the walls. It was very clever and a ton of fun to kind of follow along with the scavenger hunt. It was also fun to do the really bad clues because they're all really, <laughs> really bad poetry. And I found it surprisingly easy to write really bad poetry, which kind of worries me. Actually, that was probably pretty fun. It was. It was so much fun. <laughs> well, and Henry Frick was not a very nice person. He was a tough guy. You know, he came, he grew up in Pennsylvania and made his first million by the time he was 30. He, um, there was an assassination attempt on him in the 1800s, and the doctors took the bullets out of him without anesthesia. This was like a tough, tough guy who, at the same time, loved the work of old masters and loved art and loved sculpture. And yeah, he was, he was a pretty tough man. You did not want to tangle with him. And at the same time, his daughter, Helen, was equally tough in her own way. She was very quirky and had kind of, she, she tended to have conflicts with people throughout her life. And, you know, when he died in 1919, she was left $38 million, which made her the richest unmarried woman in America. And she went on to do really interesting, great things. But in many ways, she was overshadowed by her father because he was Henry Clay Frick. And so I wanted to kind of show what it must have been like for her as a daughter and as a woman in, in times that were changing so quickly. And I think you did that very well. But yes, yeah, she also was not super likable. They all three were prickly, really. And of course, they'd had some family things happen to them. I don't want any spoilers that did make things a little more difficult. But I just wasn't sure I would have wanted to live in that household. <laughs> I know. And that was what was fun is having this other character, Lillian, brought into the household. And Lillian is this free-spirited artist's muse. And so you really couldn't find someone who would be a worse match for Helen Frick. And the idea for the story really came from knowing about Helen Frick and who she was and learning about the woman, the real life model who posed for the reclining nude that's above the entrance of the Frick carved into stone, who was a woman named Audrey Munson, who was this famous, famous artist model who can be found all over New York City still today on statues all around the city. And you know, she's a woman who, here she is, we see her every day, we pass her every day here in New York. And she's been lost to history in many ways. She was overshadowed by the male sculptors that she worked for. And I just thought, here are these two women connected by the mansion, and let's put them together and see what happens. I agree. And I really like that. And now I want to go on a tour of New York and find Audrey everywhere. Yes, yes. On my website, we're going to have um, a map on the book club kit, there'll be a map of all of her locations. So so anyone who wants to can can see. It's really incredible. It's from, 
you know, she's in front of the Plaza Hotel. She's in front of the New York Public Library. She's at Columbus Circle. It's just incredible. She was considered to have the most perfect neoclassical features. So a kind of an aquiline nose and heavy lidded eyes and narrow shoulders and curvy hips. She was beautiful. The, the shots of her are stunning. And you just alluded to this, but I have spent so many times in visits in New York City and never once heard of her or realized there was somebody whose, I don't know, portrait's not the right word, I guess statues of her are all over the city. So now I'm so glad it's in your book club kit. And next time I'm there, I'm going to download that and go around and find her because I think that's really cool. Yeah. I mean, her story, which is different from my character Lillian's story, but Audrey's story is, is really fascinating and quite tragic where she had this scandal with her landlord, which is similar to what happens in the book. But then she and her mother fled upstate and she tried to break into film and it didn't work. She tried to commit suicide by drinking mercury. Her mother put her into an asylum and, and Audrey Munson died at, at the age of 104 in 1996. That was just amazing to me because you include that in your author's note. And I thought to have had mercury poisoning so young and then to make it to 104, I just don't know that she had a very easy life for a lot of those years. No, no, absolutely not. And and people are more aware of her now, but I think there could be more awareness of, of what she went through. And, you know, she was initially she was buried in an unmarked grave and just pretty much forgotten. Well, that's one of the reasons I love historical fiction and the various stories that people are telling now where they are bringing some of these women that have been lost to history to light. Yes, exactly. And, and you see people like um, Marie Benedict doing it so brilliantly. It's great fun to read historical fiction because of that. It really is. And Kate Quinn, I think she's got a new one about a Russian, yes. a Russian assassin or something. Yeah. So it's really fun to have those stories brought to life. Yeah. Well, how did you decide on the Frick? I was I was trying to think of where to set it. And, and the Frick had always been in the back of my mind, but I was really worried because it, even though it's a museum, it's not like the Met or the Guggenheim. It's, you know, really a mansion where people lived. But because of that, that made it even more appealing in a way because I could show what this building was like when it was a mansion. And then later, once it turned into a museum and be able to compare and contrast what that was like, and yeah, I, I just, something about it just stuck with me. And I, I'd been thinking about it for a few years. And so by the time I was ready to write that book, I was really ready to dive in. And luckily the staff at the Frick were really welcoming and gave me a, an amazing behind the scenes tour of even the places that the public aren't allowed to go. Like learning that there's a bowling alley in the basement that was built there in 1914. <laughs> it's, it's just incredible. So there were so many great places for scenes. And again, the, the characters of the Frick were so magnetic. I thought I had to, I thought, I thought it was worth the risk of setting it at the Frick, knowing that a lot of people wouldn't know what that was. But like you said, even if they didn't originally know what it was, now it's going to highlight it and a lot more people will be headed there. Which I love. I think that's great. Absolutely. Well, what else surprised you in your research? Yeah, that's a really good question. I was surprised at, at Mr. Frick's tenacity, no question. He was an interesting man. I was surprised by things like Helen Frick, who was this kind of spoiled rich lady. But at the same time, I learned that she went to um, France during World War I in 1917, that this woman created her own Red Cross unit and went with it to France to take care of refugees during World War I. And it's just not something you expect from someone who would normally be just a high society 
debutante type. She had her own mind and she she did what she wanted. And I, I just loved that. I loved how she never married. She never had kids. She created this amazing library that's right now next door to the Frick called the Frick Art Reference Library. That's one of the top libraries of the day. And uh, yeah, I love that. And I love the fact that she, she would fight back. She wasn't uh, a wallflower by any means. No, she definitely was not meek. She spoke her mind. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it was also fun in terms of doing research of going into the digital archives of the Frick and, and finding things like a dinner menu from 1915 or the payrolls of all their staff. There were 27 people who worked in the building, in the mansion, serving a, a family of three. But they had lists of who they were, what they were paid, and, and that was really helpful as well. So it was finding all those little details that I think really help make a book sing. Well, and mentioning those household details kind of goes back to what you said before. That the Frick particularly is interesting because it was a home before it became a museum. So it had kind of two different lives. Yes. And I really like that because you can play a, you can play around a lot with that, especially in terms of the mystery element of the book. Definitely. What about writing the characters? Was there anybody in particular that was easy to write that you really enjoyed writing? And was there anybody in particular that was a lot more difficult to write? Hmm. I would say Helen was the most difficult because she was so prickly and she's not someone who on the face of it feels likable yet i've had so many people who've read the book reach out to me and say that they were that she's her favorite character and i i really love that because it feels like okay then we've we've gotten someone who feels three dimensional so she was probably the toughest and then lillian was maybe the easiest and she's the artist's muse who joins the family as the private secretary and because she's someone who works on passion and, and sometimes makes bad mistakes because of it, I enjoyed writing her because it's so far actually from myself, who I'm, you know, I think things through very carefully. I, you know, outline my books, all that kind of thing. Lillian to me is the, the equivalent of a writer who sits down and just sees what happens that day as they approach the page without any idea of the structure. And I'm always, you know, so impressed with authors who do that. And in that same way, Lillian was just this free spirit character who you just never quite knew what she was going to do. And it was fun to go along for the ride. That would be fun. I think my favorite character is Veronica. I just really liked the way she showed up, the modeling, kind of how that was going, her bangs, just all of it. I just thought it was, <laughs> she was so entertaining. I feel so bad because she has this mod 60s haircut in the book that everyone thinks is kind of strange, except for the fashion world who think it's fabulous. And so, you know, if we ever do a movie, the poor actress has to wear this kind of bowl haircut that I would feel so bad about. But it's fun to write about. Yeah, but she was so fun. I just really enjoyed her. But I could see where Helen would be a favorite, too. And she kind of grows on you as the book goes, too, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think you understand where she's coming from and, and her vulnerability, which is a huge vulnerability. Absolutely. No, I do agree. And yeah, I don't want to have any spoilers, but you do understand kind of based on their family situation, why she had it a little bit harder. Yes. Yeah. Tell me about the Magnolia connection to the Frick Mansion. Well, what happened with that was that we were trying to find a title and I'm really bad at them. I tend to send things to my agent and say, this is the Frick project, you name it. And in the past that my agent, my editor have come up with mainly my agent has come up with all of the the titles for the books. 
And because you, it's tough because you need something that refers to the building, that something that refers to the story without being overt, without saying, hey, this is the New York Public Library or this is Grand <laughs> Central. So how do you do that? And this was a tough one. And so I was trying to do research to see what we could do. And I remember there's these three beautiful magnolia trees out on the lawn in front of the Frick on the Fifth Avenue side. And they're really beautiful. They're enormous. And every spring they, they flower and are really beautiful. And I started thinking, oh, maybe we'll do something around Magnolia. And then Magnolia Palace came through because it does look like a palace. It's a beautiful um, limestone building kind of in a gray white with amazing details. And at that point, I had this diamond in the book. And at that point, I realized, oh, what if I made it a pink diamond and called it the Magnolia Diamond as a way of pulling the story and the building together. So that's where that all came from. <laughs> and so I, I tend to do that. I tend to change things after I've, I've figured out the title to make the title work in the story. Well, and it always does work. And sometimes it just takes a little while to get all the pieces put together. Yes. Yeah, it's true. It's true. It's just, it, it is, it's like a huge jigsaw puzzle. And it's a huge collaborative effort where it's, you know, the art designer for the cover, which is stunning. Christopher Lynn did a a beautiful job with these magnolia blossoms that are wrapping around the cover. And, and so suddenly it, it goes from just this idea of, okay, what if we called it that to, wow, this really shows what the book's about and is so attractive and appealing and hopefully we'll get people to pick it up. And the cover is stunning. That was the next thing I was going to say. I just absolutely love it. And not only with like the pink and the magnolias, but with the words being in pink, it's just so beautifully done. Yeah, yeah, this is, it's amazing. Each cover gets better and better. <laughs> One of the things I love about your books is that now whenever I'm in Grand Central Terminal, I always think about that book when I'm in front of the New York <laughs> Public Library. So I'm just carrying you around with me when I'm uh, heading out in New York City. <laughs> I love that. I really love that. I have to say I do the exact same. I passed the New York Public Library yesterday and I was looking up going, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, and I think that's the book we talked about where the designer put a person in yellow on the stairs and then you ended up incorporating that person into your book. Was that the right book for that one? Yeah. Yeah. I, I made her love vintage clothes so that that dress fit in with her timeline. I just love that story. And that one too, you know, it's called the Lions of Fifth Avenue. And I changed the family's last name to Lions, L-Y-O-N-S after the title. That's right. I remember us talking about that. And I think that's just so fun because it is such a collaborative effort. Obviously you've written the book and that's the, the large part of it. But getting the cover on it and the editing and some of that all kind of ties in together to get the finished product. And I love that sometimes you're kind of working backwards, sounds negative, but you're working like, you know, with whatever has come out on your cover. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think we can find inspiration everywhere, including a cover, you know, that, that might not be the right time period, but then suddenly it, it is. Exactly. You're like, oh, I hadn't thought of that. And that now works really well in my story. Yeah, and it works perfectly for the character too. Yeah, I love that book too. I think it's neck and neck for my favorite with this one. <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> no, I love you. them all. So, I mean, that doesn't... Yeah, you, know what's, you know what's lovely about that is often on Facebook, there'll be people saying, oh, what's your you know favorite novel by Fiona Davis? And what's wonderful is that everyone has a different opinion, which I really love. I think I feel like certain buildings appeal to certain people or certain stories appeal to certain people. And it's lovely to see that all of them show up on those lists. As opposed to, well, you know, that was the book that didn't quite work as well, which, which can happen. And that's really cool to see. 
that definitely is cool to see. And it is so fun to see everybody's ideas and why a particular book will resonate with them. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, I'm always dying to know what's the next building. (laughs) So there's actually two, believe it or not. I started looking into Carnegie Hall for a location because above it, there's all these artist studios that were there since right after it was built filled with famous artists and photographers. And it's, it's just this incredible little city on top of Carnegie Hall. And I started doing research into it. And then I was asked by Amazon and a, a publishing company called Plimpton if I would take part in this anthology of all historical fiction authors writing short stories. And I thought, oh, I could set a short story at Carnegie Hall and that will work really, really well. And I did that and that will be out this summer. So keep an eye out for that. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah, I haven't even heard of that. What's it called? I'm not sure what the anthology is called yet. I think they're still working on that. But I'll, I'll be posting everything on my website and on social media once, once we know when it's coming up. And, and I don't even know who else is involved. So that'll be fun to find out. You just preempted my next question. Yeah. <laughs> and who else is writing books? And it, that's wonderful to know about. And that sounds fabulous. And the short story will be about Carnegie Hall. And I didn't realize that there were all those studios and rooms above Carnegie Hall. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're not there now. They've renovated oh, and made okay. it into education space and, and offices. But um, all these famous people, Marlon Brando lived there for a time. Wow. Bill Cunningham, the New York Times photographer, lived there. Just a ton of famous people lived there and moved through those buildings and studios. So it's, it's kind of a, another secret of New York that you wouldn't know unless you looked up. That's really cool. Yeah. So that is in the works. And then the next book, I was trying to think of where to set one. And I got an email from a former Rockette who was in her 80s, who said, hey, if you want to know the secrets of Radio City, you should reach out to me. And of course I did. And she was incredible. She had all these archival materials that she'd saved about you know the schedule and here's what we did when, and this is how everything happened. And so I decided to set the next book at Radio City from the point of view of a Rockette in the 1950s. How much fun. (laughs) I am so excited about both of those. Yeah, it's been great. I've been interviewing a ton of Rockettes in their 70s and 80s, and it's just wonderful stories. My daughter, who's in college in New York, just said the other day, next year at Christmas time, I want you to come up so we can see the Rockettes. I'm not sure she's ever seen them, and if she has, it's been many years. So that's so fun because literally we were just talking about Radio City Musical and the Rockettes and all of that. Oh, that'll be wonderful. That's perfect. Yeah, they're so iconic. They're just such a part of the city. And and it's fun to write about dance. It's something different for me. Oh, that's true too. So it will not be a dual timeline. It'll just be set in one time frame. It will be dual timeline, but it'll be more like a bookend of modern day and then going back in time. Like flashing back. Yes. And keep in mind, things get edited. So who, who knows what it will become? <laughs> right at the moment, it's that. <laughs> And you had a little bit more time before this book came out. You had a year and a half instead of a year. Are you doing that again? Yes, I am. It just helps me write a better book. And it helps me with all the publicity that's going on, which is wonderful. Um, I just can't meet a book a year deadline anymore. I'll lose my, my mind. And this just gives me a little downtime so I can stop and think about what I'm doing. And also when you're writing a, a book, you need to step away from it for a couple of weeks at a time and then come back to it fresh. And you just can't do that if you're churning out a book a year. So yeah, it'll be a year and a half going forward. That's really nice because you need the downtime 
for yourself, independent of just needing the downtime for the book. You know, like you said, just to step away, focus on other things, get to write this other short story, yes. do some other things like that, or just take a break and enjoy yourself. Yeah, yeah. And I love it so much. I mean, I, I want to keep on doing it and and this will make it make it work. And, and Dutton, my publisher, was just wonderful about it. So that's really great. No, I think that's nice. And I know I always ask you this, but as you walk around the city, do you just sort of make constant lists of buildings? Like, I, oh, this would make a great one that I should set something in. Oh, this would make a great one. It, definitely. There's always buildings that I I'm kind of have on the back burner for sure. But also at the same time, I'm one of those people, I can't do too many things at one time. So if I'm working on a book about a building, I try not to get caught going down rabbit holes about other ones. It's like cheating on the building I'm working on. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Uh, That's cute. Well, yes. Plus you just want to focus on what you're focused on. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, that's the only way I can do it these days. (laughs) I always wonder if you're going to ever do one at the plaza. Ooh, you know, a a wonderful writer, Julie Sato wrote a Mm -hmm. wonderful book called the plaza. Right. We hosted you two together. Yes. Yes. And so I always think, oh, and then I could just recommend those two books together. Yes, they'd be a great companion piece. Definitely. In fact, she's wonderful. She's being the moderator for the launch of Magnolia Palace. Oh, she is? Yeah. And she's working on a new book, I think. Yes, a really exciting book. I can't wait. It's uh, it's going to be really great. She's She's just a great writer and a great researcher. And it's fun having a friend who writes nonfiction because it's a different kind of thing, yet in many ways it's the same. And so when we meet and chat, it's just fascinating to hear her process. Absolutely. And you guys were such a great pairing. So that's why I keep thinking, I really need Fiona to write this plaza book so that we can then host them again with two aspects about a different perspectives on the plaza. Oh, I'll just show up whenever she does anything anyway. <laughs> you just invite one of us and the other one will come. That, that was so much fun. That was really a, an amazing afternoon. It was a great pairing. I just think focusing on buildings in New York City, it was so interesting. Yeah, it was brilliant. Well, talking about other books, before we wrap up, what have you read recently that you really liked? I loved, well, you know, I'm kind of in dance mode with the Radio City book, but I loved a book called The Ballerinas. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's so good by Rachel Kapelke Dale. And it's it's a bit of a thriller, yet it's about the dance world and it, it has two timelines and it's so well written. I love this book. I couldn't put it down and I didn't want it to end. So that's one of my favorites. And then the other one that I read recently was The Maid by Nita Prose. And that's gotten some great reviews and hit the list and is just a a great closed door mystery. It was terrific. Yeah, that one has been on a lot of lists and I've been listening to people recommending it. Yeah, it's fun. It's a fun read. And the ballerinas, I love that cover. And Olga Gerlich, who I interviewed as a cover designer, was the designer for that cover. Oh my goodness, that it's beautiful. I'm, I'm staring at it right now and it makes me want to pick it up and read it all over again. Yeah, I think I need to read that book because people keep talking about it. And I think, first I thought maybe it would be too dark, but it doesn't sound like it's super dark. No, 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 no. Yeah. No, it's great. It's about three girls. It's about friendship. It's just, just terrific. Yep. So it sounds like I've got to pick it up. <laughs> <laughs> Let me know what you think. Yes, exactly. Well, Fiona, as always, it is just delightful to speak with you. And I'm so glad that you took the time to come on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. Oh, thank you. Anytime. I'm, I'm there. I appreciate everything you're doing to help us get the word out. It's, it's very much appreciated. So thank you. Oh, absolutely. And I can't wait for everybody to read The Magnolia Palace. Thanks. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes. And luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories, 
I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed today can be purchased at the Conversations From A Page bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.